You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. We certainly appreciate you guys being part of the Hazard Ground community. Speaking of the Hazard Ground community, I want to remind you guys, make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Keep up with the show, see preview of next week's guests and all the information that we have going on. And of course, all the great sponsors that we're working with, including... Cabela's this week's sponsor. The world's foremost outfitter of hunting, fishing, and outdoor gear, Cabela's provides everyone from the expert hunter and angler to the family looking to get away for a weekend camping trip with the right gear at the best prices. So if you're looking to outfit your next big adventure or just looking for some great gear to use around the house or the cabin, go to our sponsors page, hazardground.com sponsors. That's hazardground.com sponsors. And click on the Cabela's banner. You have to go through our sponsors page if you want to help out the show and make the most of your next outdoor adventure. Also continuing to run our promotion with Amazon. Use the Amazon link on our homepage, hazardground.com. Do all of your Amazon shopping. It costs you nothing. We'll donate a portion of the proceeds to the amazing veteran organizations that are featured on the show. So as you guys get ready for the holiday season and you're going to Amazon, go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon banner and you'll be supporting veterans organizations everywhere. We certainly appreciate you guys doing that. Now on to this week's episode and a timely one at that with Veterans Day coming up. This week's guest is a former Marine Corporal who spent time in the Panama Invasion and Desert Shield Desert Storm. He currently is the Executive Director of the United War Veterans Council, which hosts the New York City Veterans Day Parade every single year. He is Mark Otto on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Mark. It's an honor. All right, well, look, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, and the New York City Veterans Day Parade, a huge event every year, and certainly thank you for taking the time to help put that on in one of the biggest cities in the country, and obviously, after 9-11, uh, New York City, a very you know sensitive place and very special place for veterans, so uh, we'll get to all that coming up, but let's start all the way back at the beginning and why you joined the Marine Corps. Yeah, so um, my background, I'm fifth of my family to actually serve in war. Uh, my grandfather and my great-uncle were in World War II uh, in Europe. My grand, my dad and my uncle were both in Vietnam, did multiple tours. They were all in the Army, so I was the first Marine to join. But uh, I always wanted to serve ever since I was a little kid, so it was just sort of like a fate that it was going to happen. Now, did you sign up right out of high school? Yes, I did. Okay, so... Uh, delayed entry also. Oh, really? So you were 17 or whatever? Yep. Did, did your family, when you made that decision, did the family, you know, your family have any re reservations about it or anything like that? Yeah, so um, my, my parents definitely were, were quite alarmed by it. My mom is Vietnamese. My dad met her during the war. Um, they had my sister in Vietnam. They were separated during the Tet Offensive. And by some miracle, my dad was able to actually find my mom. They've been married for 51 years now. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that's a whole story in itself. So they definitely had some reservations because they saw some of the ugliness of what went down in Vietnam. I think they uh, they pretty much lived watching the TV during CNN's 24-hour broadcast of Desert Storm. That is amazing. I, I mean, I just I want to go back to your parents. Um, we, we've yeah. we've chronicled the Tet Offensive through several different guests here on the Hazard Ground, and that is an unreal story. Uh, can you kind of encapsulate it real quick? You know, if you if you have a synopsis yeah. of it, absolutely. So, um, my dad wasn't a gunslinger. My dad was in logistics. He always says that you know he had an easy job compared to the grunts that were out there fighting the battles. However, war sort of came to their footsteps um, when my dad was home on leave. Uh, after his second tour and he was signing up for his third, 
my dad's one of 12 Irish German family uh, growing up on uh, in, in Greenwich Village of New York City on Thompson Street between Houston and Prince. And uh, they were close-knit family. So my dad was home, and the Tet Offensive goes down. So my mom and my dad had an apartment in Longbin outside of Saigon, outside of the base perimeters. Uh, my dad canceled his leave, rushed back to find my mom. His family was like, you don't even know she's alive. Everyone's getting murdered and killed in the streets over there. And he said, how could I live with myself if I didn't go back right, right. now to find that would happen? Seriously. My mom had my sister at the time there, and she was pregnant with me. Uh, my dad gets back to Saigon Airport, and he gets picked up by a couple of GIs in a Jeep. They're heading back to the base. And um, at the same time, there's still chaos and pandemonium going on. And apparently, the Viet Cong blew up an ammo depot. So the concussion from that blast was felt across the area. My dad was stuck in a convoy in a Jeep. And the five-ton troop carrier driver behind them panicked when a concussion blast hit them and hit the gas and ran right into the back of their Jeep. My dad woke up in a field hospital, and uh, I'm, he, wasn't, he wasn't certain what happened to the other two guys that were in the Jeep. Uh, but a, a colonel was walking down the row handing out Purple Hearts, and my dad looked up and just said to him, I don't deserve a Purple Heart. I was in a car accident because he had no idea what actually happened. Uh, he didn't find that out till later. So my dad gets up doesn't even check out of the hospital, starts walking towards this farmer's market where my mom's family was selling produce. So um, at that point, he knew that she wouldn't be at the restaurant. She'd probably be in hiding somewhere. And by a miracle, he runs into my grandfather at that farmer's market, and he had to take off his headdress. It, uh, his head was all uh, banged up from uh, bleeding from, from the, uh, from the, the accident. Yeah. yeah, so he had to take off the bandages so, so my grandfather would actually recognize him. Um, but yes, so fortunately it was a miracle that he did find my grandfather because my mom was in hiding at my aunt's house and my dad had never actually been there. So they probably would never have reconnected. So it was sort of fate, but, um, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's 51 years later and, uh, they're still happily married. I have a, I have a sister and, um, you know, the, the family's doing good. Talk about the grace of God. That is unreal. Yeah. yeah. Like, you can't make that kind of story up. Like that is whew. Man. Yeah, I was still my dad. He's he's the hero of the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow. I, that, that's uh, I I haven't heard anything like that. We've heard a lot of crazy <laughs> stories. Like that really is is near the top of the list. We have to get your dad on now to tell that whole story yeah. and the intricacies of that. That is amazing. All right. So uh, so obviously your parents had some reservations about you you signing up for the Marines and, and going into the service. But, you know, you got in at a time of peace. So was it really a just a concern that you would ever end up in war? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. At the time that I signed up, it was peacetime. Uh, so it was a, a different type of military. The country is in a different place at that point in time, too. Uh, so I went in just, you know, doing my patriotic duty and, and wanting to follow the footsteps of, of the, those who came before me. My dad had reservations, but at the time that I signed up, he felt pretty good that, you know, things weren't going to happen the way they unfolded in the next four years. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's odd because it really was, it was, so you got an 88, but it was peacetime. And then all of a sudden you had these little skirmishes and the Gulf War breaks out. You know, it was nothing really that yeah. was really United States focused. It's just, we ended up getting involved in things. You can make the argument we didn't need to get involved in, but uh, you know, that's neither here nor there, but we end up doing it. So um, you get in, you go through all your basic and everything else. Just to, as far as basic and your, your, your follow-on training, was it everything you thought it was going to be? Any surprises? 
Um, I guess there are, there's a few, you know, twists and turns in everyone's uh, four-year um, commitments to the military. So I, I went through Paris Island. I was a third battalion. I got stationed on Camp Lejeune. I was at um, 8th Com Battalion 1st. I took the indoctrination test and got into Second Force Reconnaissance Company. I was stationed in the comm shop there for a couple of months. And at the same time, the Marine Corps itself was going through changes. They, they actually stood up what was called the Second Surveillance Reconnaissance and Intelligence Group. Uh, they did what uh, shrigs is what they were referred to on each one of the divisions. It was their first sort of effort to, to take all of the intelligence gathering assets and special operations type units and put them under one umbrella. So um, prior to that, the Marine Corps was very infantry orientated. They didn't like anything with the word special in front of it. So at that same point in time, they sort of rearranged the furniture and they were pulling people from different units to patch up and build up other units. I was then um, sent over to intelligence company. I was still only a PFC at the time. So I really, you know, was still in the learning phase. Uh, when I got to Intel company, they were revamping this unit uh, that deployed motion sensors to track enemy movement. So they had some sort of claim to fame in Vietnam uh, as they actually had them on the Ho Chi Minh trail, trail and they gathered some uh, great intelligence on enemy movements there. However, they gone sort of dormant over time and they were sort of misused over time. So uh, at that point in time, uh, they pulled in my warrant officer, uh, Duke Colvin. Duke was his nickname, and uh, he came from JSOC, and uh, he was uh, he was supposed to be en route to Second Force, and they rerouted them to this intel company to take over the platoon. So he then uh, requested people from Second Force and other areas uh, to to come in and sort of act as cadre for training and revamp this um, this unit. So I was actually one of, I was the lowest ranking person that was yanked and sent over there as a PFC. There was about a, you know, about four or five sergeants that came over as well. Uh, through him, you know, we ended up getting a lot of training that otherwise we would not have gotten. Um, you know, we all got airborne qualified through Benning. Some of us went through SEER school, and, including myself on Bragg. So uh, he really upped the level of training and re-gutted the unit and, and, uh, and redid it. And because of that, uh, aside from the Panama invasion and Desert Storm, we actually got missions with Joint Task Force 6, which was counter-narcotics operations on the border of Mexico. Wow. So, uh, so that was really colorful as well. Uh, really interesting work. Uh, using motion sensors, you can be very creative on how to use them to uh, track people in all ways, shapes, and forms. So down on the border, yeah, well, if you see nowadays, they, they, they're doing all sorts of things, but... Uh, back then, you know, we could cover a 20-mile radius with, with sensor fields, and uh, we worked with uh, federal law enforcement as uh, reactionary forces as well. You went to SEER school. Now, for those who don't know, uh, who are non-military listening, SEER, S-E-R-E, Survive, Evade, Resist, and Escape, that's, uh, I, I wish, that's like the one school I wish I could have gone to. Like, I would go to that school now if they offered it to me. I think that's the coolest course that the military offers. Yeah, it's pretty amazing school. Um, you learn a lot about yourself. So yeah. the fun, the funny thing was, uh, I got home from Benning on a Friday to Camp Lejeune, and I walk in and check into my uh, my my CO's office, and and Duke Colvin sitting there going, Otto and my friend Kaufman that was with me. Um, he goes, "You two idiots are the only one that put in for uh, SFC or school on Bragg." He's like, "Everything you need is is what you brought to jump school with you. Just drive across to Bragg, and your school starts on Monday. I'll see you in three weeks." <laughs> so uh, we got across there, and uh, we really had no idea what we were getting into. Um, but the funniest, the funniest claim to fame, because I wasn't one of these guys that had like fifteen hundred jumps. 
But my one claim to fame is we went from jumping out of C-141 star lifters and C-130s um, on a drop zone in the shape of, like, New Jersey uh, down at Fort Benning to jumping into Camp McCall, which is basically like jumping into your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first jump out of jump school was jumping into Sears school. And the funniest thing was we got our briefing and they're like, y'all are Marines. You don't have to be jumping out of these planes. You can just, we'll just insert you and you'll meet up with the team and you'll, you know, take off. And we're like, we're Marines. We better barely ever get to jump. Hell yeah, we want to jump. So we're all right. excited. We get out to the drop zone. And you have to remember, I was jumping out of these giant cargo planes. We get to the drop zone. There's this tiny little civilian planes. And they're like, well, here's your brief. Only four of you are going to fit in this thing sitting down. <laughs> and the plane's going to go vertical and drop the tailgate, and you're all going to get freaking pooped out. <laughs> wow. That's so, incredible. Uh, so my friend and I look at each other like, all right, well, now we're stuck because we're the only Marines here in this course. And we're going to look like knuckleheads if, if we back out now. So we're like, all right, here we go. So, of course, uh, we jumped. It was sort of gusty wind day, uh, tiny drop zone. The one thing I always heard about that, that you never want to happen is to go through a tree. Of course, I went right through a tree. Nice. And uh, covered my, my face and, uh, and uh, you know, made myself like a knife going through the tree. Felt all the branches brush against me. And then by some miracle, I stopped like six inches off the ground wow <laughs> and, and i open my eyes i'm like feeling my 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 arms and legs like holy crap i don't have a freaking scratch on me and i and i hit my releases and i literally walk out of my suit and that's when the fun began because i heard the dogs barking <laughs> that is great that is outstanding but, but it was a pretty awesome course the course was started by two green berets yeah uh, that were captured for five years nick rowe ended up writing a book called five years to freedom it's a great read if you have a chance you should read it dan pritzer was actually still there as a civilian advisor teaching the course he was the army medic so um it, it was a really great course i, I know a couple of guys who went through it they told me some stories from it it just it, it I, I think you encapsulated it best by saying you'll learn a lot about yourself um, yeah. Whereas, you know, Navy SEAL buds or, you know, special forcement assessment selection, that's a whole different animal. Anybody can go to SEER school um, and, and with, with the concept of, you know, hey, look, you're captured, right? And, and this right. is how you're, you're going to literally get out of this and survive. You know, it, it's not necessarily challenging you physically the way some like buds would or, or assessment and selection would, things of that nature. But it's, it's, it's certainly pushing you to limits you didn't know you had. Absolutely. Yeah, you're out there with a 50-pound sandbag, and they weigh it at the checkpoint, so don't think you're going to get uh, shifty and try and empty out some of the sand and put it back. Because if your sandbag doesn't weigh 50 pounds, you get a coupon or you can fail the course. So coupons are usually weird, awkward things to carry that are heavy, and you'll be carrying that for the rest of the course to, to make good on on um, having a lighter bag at the checkpoint. So, um, you know, that that's always a factor. One of the funniest things that happened to us out there, it was a slightly illuminated night. We're walking across this cow patty, and uh, it's it's all farms around the surrounding area. And uh, one of my guys goes to me, hey, you know, there's five of us out there. They're like, I wonder how they separate, like, the bulls from the cows. And all of a sudden, we just hear this noise of, like, <laughs> and we see this gigantic thing running down the fence line at us. So we all haul ass forward. And because of the illumination from the moon, it was like one of those things where the hedge line created this really dark shadow um, over the fence line. Right. So our, our point guy, all you hear is this guy run into the fence and go, bo, 
boom, and he flips over the fence. He's got a 50-pound sandbag on his back, so he hits the ground. And um, and he's like, oh, and, and that's all we heard. And we all ran up the fence line like, holy crap. But uh, fortunately, we made it all, all over the fence before uh, we got trampled. So there that, you was, go. that was pretty good. And then there was another time that uh, we got to this obstacle course on Camp McCall, and the instructor was a World War II ranger who apparently, the story goes, he had one dead eye. He looked like you know uh, this mean old grandpa off a bar stool from the VFW or something. And, <laughs> and uh, he had one dead eye, and apparently, the story goes, he was a ranger, and he was on some you know crazy secret mission. He was one of the only survivors. No one knew the real details about it, but that was the story. So this guy gets up on this um, sort of wall that's all blown out. They had this, like, obstacle course area that looks like, you know, Beirut, Lebanon after. And um, he gets up on this wall. He's like, ah, you guys think you're fucking tough. He's like, try and do this. And he runs across this cinder block wide wall that's about 15 feet off the ground. Like, you and I are running across a parking lot. And we all just looked at each other like, where the hell did they dig this guy up? <laughs> Unreal. So, so halfway across the wall, the guy in front of me freezes up. And you're right, because there are all sorts of uh, characters that come through this course. And uh, the guy that froze up in front of me was actually uh, a very interesting character. I, go, I, I, I look down, and he stops in front of me, so I have to stop. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Don't stop on this wall. You're, you're going to freaking fall. And he goes, I'm afraid of heights. And I looked up, and I remembered in the briefing, this dude was the captain of the Golden Knights jump team. Wow. <laughs> So I said to him, you're afraid of heights. I was like, don't you have like a million jumps? He's like, yeah, over 1,600. But the reason why all the apparatuses at, at Fort Benning are roughly between 15 and 30 feet is because your mind knows that your body is in imminent danger if you fall from that height. I guess that's pretty true. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We haven't even gotten to a deployment yet, uh, and you've had this much experience. So uh, let's turn forward to that. Uh, you were part of the Panama Invasion. Um, yep. what was that like? What were you told? Uh, we, we've, we've told that story a couple of times, not as often as we would have liked, nor desert storm for that matter. And you were through them both. So I'm excited to hear about it. But, uh, what were you told prior to going into Panama? So, um, we were on a routine shift with Panama because again, using motion sensors for many, many years, they had them all along the canal to protect the, uh, the canal zone. So, uh, we were re replacing a team that was already down there. And you have to remember the thing about Panama we had six spaces all over the canal for, for many, many years. So we land on the ground in civilian clothing. And uh, our POC down there greets us at the plane. They're like, uh, are you guys from 2nd Surveillance Reconnaissance Intelligence Group? And we said, yes. And they said, wait here. And a five-ton troop carrier came around the back of the plane, dropped the tailgate, and they're like, get your weapons. We're at war. So in the couple of days leading up to going down to Panama, Noriega had declared war on the United States. He had his PDF guys putting up roadblocks everywhere. And uh, right before we headed down, there was an officer killed uh, by, by one of the PDF guys at one of these roadblocks. And that's really what triggered the Panama invasion. So we got down there, got our weapons, and uh, part of the briefing was, well, I got bad news and I have good news. The bad news is the surveillance team that you're replacing followed protocol and ripped everything out of the ground. So we don't have any surveillance equipment in the ground, but the good news is every Marine's a rifleman. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, we, we ended up changing our mission and we got mixed in with the infantry. Uh, so the interesting thing about the Panama invasion that most people don't know about is we had about 26,000 troops involved in the Panama invasion. 
Uh, about 6,000 paratroopers jumped into combat. We had the entire 82nd Airborne jumped in, the 75th Ranger Regiment jumped in, and it was the first time that all of the special ops units were in one place at one time since the Vietnam War. It was also the first time that the Apache gunship was used in combat, and it was the first time that anything stealth hit hit something in war. So the F-117 was actually uh, used during the Panama invasion as well. So wow. um, there was this gap between like uh, Vietnam, and then you know we had the skirmish for for Beirut, mm-hmm. and then yeah. uh, and then Panama was a few years later. But this was sort of like a proving ground for all these modern you know, toys that they developed over the years. Did you actually see combat? Yeah. So in Panama, we were mixed in with the infantry. Uh, we did take some direct fire from the Panamanian defense forces. One thing that you can consider with Panama, it's such a small area. It's like having a war in a small town. So the volume of fire was very intense. When the, and when the invasion kicked off, it was about one in the morning, slightly illuminated night. You could see all of the cargo planes with the paratroopers jumping in. Um, from from my position and there was just tracers everywhere all at once it was just like time to the second everything just opened up um so it was pretty intense fighting uh particularly for the first 36 hours and then um you know within a couple weeks you know things things sort of uh died off one of the things i vividly remember is i was stationed on uh robin naval station and they had these old like quonset huts i think they were probably built in like world war ii so they're like you know the the half circle shaped structures with steel roofs on them every day in Panama, it would pour rain, like, like torrential downpour for at least 10 minutes, which, which really sounded like nails hitting the roof. Um, but we were on the same base uh, next to the seal teams that were sent down there. And unfortunately um, they were sent out to the airport to disable the plane and four of them were killed. So one of my vivid memories of the Panama invasion was after the fighting was done, we were at the enlisted club on Robin Naval station and that song, Proud to be an American was huge back then. Right. So everyone was drinking up, having, you know, um, sort of uh, commemorating and, and thinking about all the people that, that fell during the Panama invasion. But when that song came on, everyone was standing on the tables, standing on the BART schools, and, uh, and screaming that song at the top of their lungs. So it was a very memorable moment. Yeah, powerful stuff to say the least. Um, so yeah. Panama ends for you. Uh, mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, 1990, um, you know, Saddam Hussein gets a little bit quirky. And next thing you know, we're in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So what was your role in that? Yeah, so uh, I was actually very thankful. I was supposed to go to Greenland for winter combat training, and our ship got canceled for the war, and I was jumping up and down. So <laughs> the only thing I heard about winter combat training was it's cool for a couple of days, and it's just like all white and frostbite for the months that follow. Uh, so, so. Our team was, was sent over to uh, Desert Storm, and we had about 15 of our teams um, that were doing sensor deployments because you have to remember, this is this is probably the last linear-scale war they, there may ever be. Yes. Unless, like, you know, World War Three happens, and it's like a Mad Max scenario or something at the end of the world. Well, but, and um, for those listening, when the non-military folks, you know, linear warfare, meaning good guys on one side, bad guys on the other, yep. and let, let's go fight this thing out. It's not the way we fight in, in combat anymore. Everybody's mixed in, and it's guerrilla warfare and things of that nature. Absolutely. So um, so when we were over there in Desert Storm, uh, our, our teams were tasked to, to deploy these sensor fields along the front lines and forward of the front lines to make sure that enemy probes weren't coming in to see what was going on. 
Uh, so my particular team was was tasked out to provide this type of forward security for um, an organization called uh, Task Force Troy. So there were six OPs across the front lines, observation posts. Um, so so they went one through six from from, uh, from east to west, and um, one was on you know the, the Persian Gulf. But um, we were by the Al Wafra oil fields, and um, we were tasked with putting up pretty much the biggest movie set ever created. Uh, we were there to do psyops and make sure that Saddam Hussein thought that we were going to assault from from the Gulf inwards, an amphibious assault. This allowed the 1st and 2nd Marine Divisions to sweep up behind us and blitz up the middle through the minefields. So for about the week and a half before the ground invasion kicked off, we were out there putting up all these fake tanks, um, fake gun emplacements with PVC piping and camo netting. And then uh, we also did things like drop leaflets out of helicopters with little cartoons on them saying, we we're about to decimate everything in this area in the next 12 hours. And then we rolled in with B-52s and actually did it. And then we put out more leaflets and helicopters saying we're going to be back in 12 hours. And that's when we saw a lot of white flags coming up. So, really? Uh, yeah. So uh, our, our primary mission was to make sure that while we had the skeleton crew out there making it look like we had a division out there, uh, what we wanted to do was make sure that no enemy probes could get in and see what was going on. How much was the the psyop psychological operations, or you know that that part of the warfare, um, part of that the, the entire war? I guess. I mean, because one of the things I was thinking and asking you about this was, were you surprised at how little resistance that we met from you know the Iraqi army? I just remember I was young at the time. Um, I was even God in grammar school, but um, you know it was one of those things where I just remember hearing about how quickly they gave up. You know, the the Iraqi forces quickly surrendered and. Uh, Norman Schwarzkopf was going like a hot knife through butter all the way through Saudi Arabia into Iraq and everything else. And so it was, uh, I, I just was curious at the level of surrender that you saw. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a big factor to that was that, again, this, this war was more run almost like a World War II type battlefield. So, so there was the buildup. We were sending, we were sending troops over there from um from the summertime all the way up until like february so it took that long to get three quarters of a million troops over there we had a coalition of about 38 different countries as well yeah and 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 for about the month leading into the ground invasion we just pummeled them with just sortie after sortie after sortie of bombs just blowing up everything so we really softened them up before we went in for the killer blow um, we did take some artillery fire, um, particularly in our area, because um, we, we were doing things like calling very, very, very well-placed airstrikes and that type of thing. So, um, so we did take some artillery fire. However, um, you know, once the ground offensive took place and they blasted through the minefields and charged up into Kuwait, we ended up linking up with the larger units because our, our mission was done. So I actually got up through the minefield. And one of the more hairy things that happened was this about you know, just after six in the morning, the sun had just risen. But Saddam Hussein, before they started, you know, uh, heading back to Iraq, they let two they lit two hundred oil fields, uh, oil wells on fire. Yeah. So all that smoke was in the air, and it shifted over the minefields. So you have to remember, a lot of these cuts that were made through the minefields were basically line charges, you know, C four that they just detonated and made instant pass for the vehicles to get through. So we were stuck in there for like an hour and a half 
when when the when the smoke actually shifted over the oil fields, and it, it was one of those situations where you couldn't get out and dismount your vehicle because you're in the middle of a minefield. Yeah, that so, would be uh, bad. Yeah, so that was pretty crazy. But um, we got to the Kuwait airport up there, and um, our commander wanted to regroup all of our teams. So the easiest way was to just say everybody go to the airport. Uh, we linked up. We did bomb assessment of what happened for uh, up there on the highway of death. And that was really quite a mess. So uh, for those who don't know, Saddam Hussein didn't formally surrender. And he was pulling his troops out of Kuwait, heading north to uh, to Iraq again. And we just bombed the hell out of the column. And uh, it, it was just it was just pieces of vehicles and people everywhere. So it was uh, it was really a, a really big mess. How long were you there for? So um, I went right after New Year's. Okay. And I was there until uh, the later part of March going into April. Yeah, because I remember it only lasted like 10 weeks. Yeah, it was well, the, the ground offensive was a 100-hour war, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so, uh, so it was uh, intense. You know, I have to remember also that back then you had Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell. I, I think a lot of the thought process back then was we're going to do it the right way. Uh, we, You know, those two in particular had lived through Vietnam. And they wanted to make sure that, that you know, we were going to go in with overwhelming force uh, with a coalition. And part of that, co um, that co coalition was built upon the fact that we agreed that we weren't going to oust Saddam Hussein or try and take over Iraq at the time. And that's what everything sort of hinged upon. So um, we did exactly that. We had, we had an entry plan, an exit plan, and, and everything executed pretty flawlessly, I would say. Yeah, um, uh, a lot to digest. Now, uh, when you think back to, and it's funny you mentioned Schwarzkopf and Powell. Um, yep. I, I wonder, are, are generals back then better than the ones today, do you think? I mean, do you think their leadership was something that was unique? I don't think it's that as much as um, the fact that warfare has changed. Right. So you hit it, the nail on the head. We've gone from uh, linear scale warfare like that into guerrilla warfare so and urban operations um, it's it's basically you're comparing something that's like black and white cut and dry to something that only operates in the gray so so with guerrilla warfare things are much much more complex you're living amongst the population it the variables are entirely different so um i would say that you know with with a type of warfare like desert storm you're, you're probably going to have a higher probability of success as far as, you know, measuring what's now. Uh, you know, we've been at war for 17 years, but it's a different type of war. We're, we're trying to win the hearts and minds of people, right? So I think that's more the goal. That's a much, much more long-term goal. One of the things I'm actually very thankful for, I've been a trader on the stock exchange for like 25 years. And um, one of my friends came up to me one day from J.P. Morgan. Uh, a few years after the war, and I'd only been down, you know, on the floor as a junior clerk. And I said, yeah, sure, you know, bring, bring your guests over. I, I'd love to meet them. So it was a guy and his son. And he said, I heard you were in Desert Storm as a Marine. I said, yeah. And he goes, I'd like to shake your hand. I said, sure, why? And he said, I'm Kuwaiti. If you didn't rescue my country, my son here would never have been born. So, um, you know, next year, 2020 is actually going to be 30 years later after Desert Storm, one of the things that I'm very happy about is that Panama next year will be 30 years, um, is still at peace. And now a lot of people are actually retiring down there. Um, 
And then the same thing's true with Kuwait. Kuwait, 30 years later, is surrounded by chaos, but the country is at peace. It's amazing. That, that, I got chills when you said that. Now, I, I don't know if you believe in the uh, collective tissue or, uh, you know, the, the overarching power of uh, the higher being, but think of what your dad had to go through uh, to save you and, and to keep you intact. And in a way, you sort of return that favor uh, in some small part to that Kuwaiti man who, uh, whose son was born because you were part of that, that liberation. Yeah, I'm just grateful to have been, you know, able to serve my country and, and do my job. I wasn't a hero. I just do, did what I signed up to do, and um, and I was happy to play a small part. Uh, years years later, the same thing happened on the stock exchange. I met a guy and a girl in their 20s, and uh, he was five and she was two when we rescued Kuwait. So I'm hoping that in the future we're going to hear more and more stories about Iraq and Afghanistan that are going to be similar to this because they're definitely out there. No, they certainly are. Um, you know, it's it's funny when you say that. I think of the experiences I had uh, with the Iraqis that I work with day in and day out. I don't know if I'd ever recognize any of them unless there was a picture that I was shown um, from some of the guys that, that I trained side by side with every day. But uh, that's that feeling has got to be something that's so rewarding. It's just hard to describe uh, when yep. someone expresses that sort of gratitude for the work that you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So four short years in the Marine Corps, you've jam-packed a ton into the whole thing, but yet you decide to hang it up. Why? And, and how did it end? So, um, I was on a five man team. We mostly stuck together the whole time. Um, but I had three guys on my team get married and divorced in the same hitch. And I just saw that the lifestyle that we led was uh, very difficult to have a family. So, um, my decision really, uh, was, do I stay in the military and keep on doing this? Cause I really couldn't see doing any other type of job in the military. Um, or someday if I'm going to have a family, uh, I should probably get out. So, um, I took the ladder and, um, at the time, you know, I, I had a lot of foresight cause I was, I was 21. Right. But, um, but I, I thought it was, it was probably best for me, you know, someday if that was my ambition that, that I should follow that course. So, so I ended up getting out of the military and, and most people were very shocked cause I was super gung ho at the time. What did your parents say when you told them you were getting out? I think they had a sigh of relief for sure. Um, <laughs> especially uh, when I walked through the door of the military uh, four four years earlier, they had no idea what was going to happen for the next four years. So uh, having having crammed all that into four years, I think uh, they were very, very happy that I decided to get out. You know, you said your mom is, was watching CNN 24 hours in a row during, during the Desert Storm. Uh, did you ever talk to her about what she went through and, and what her experience was like from her end? Mom doesn't doesn't really like to talk about it, um, you know, just about the story of, of my dad and how, you know, he came in, sort of um, risked everything to to uh, save our family. So um, she's, you know, uh, she's tried to sort of not forget, but um, but not really talk about it as much. I mean, um, one thing that she's thankful for is uh, once they got back to the United States in, in the late 70s, she was able to actually get her one of her sisters. My mom's one of seven. Um, she got one of her sisters out with her family. They escaped Vietnam because my my parents uh, arranged through the churches to to actually get them a route out. Uh, so they were part of the boat people back in the late seventies. But also, did she ever tell you about what she went through as your mother while you were in Desert Storm? Oh, no, just you know, I've just over and over repeatedly heard that they just didn't sleep the whole time. My dad, you know, um, 
after work would come home watch the watch cnn and then before going to work in the morning and and then some so uh she and her family are, were very close-knit and they were you know my entire family at the time was was pretty much watching and communicating amongst amongst each other so i wonder uh, i wonder if that's worse than what we go through like it's it, it, in a certain way i almost feel like you know whatever fear you have in combat and whatever emotions you have um, you learn to process and deal with very quickly and discard and you just move on. And eventually it becomes so routine that it doesn't even feel like much of fear anymore or apprehension or whatever. But on the other side, for our family members, our parents, our, our siblings, loved ones, whatever it may be, sitting back every day and watching the news or every time the phone would ring, you know, do you jump? Do you, does your heart skip a beat? Like, I wonder which side would be worse. I, I think that side would be worse. Yeah, I, I definitely think that back then um, people were much more hypersensitive to it, especially since like um, with Desert Storm when the ground war went on. I, I think everyone in America was watching CNN or, or watching, you know, the news reports at that point in time. The one interesting thing about Desert Storm that I think will also never happen again is there was a media blackout once we actually went in on the ground offensive. So, so I don't ever see that happening again. <laughs> no, not by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you get out of the Marines. Did you know what you wanted to do next? I know you had mentioned, obviously, as you tipped uh, that you're a trader on the stock floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but did you know that's what you wanted to do? How did that come about? Yeah, so I was home on leave from Joint Task Force 6, and um, I, I, I was, uh, you know, I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey, which is a Wall Street suburb. So when I went to the military, most of my friends were on the street in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so one of my friends was uh, a broker clerk on the trading floor, and uh, he rang me up because he knew I was home, and he said, why don't you come down to the trading floor of the NYFC and check it out? So I'm thinking back, like, uh, this is this is around the time of, like, the first Wall Street movie with Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen, so, like, chaos, pandemonium, people yelling. I was like, this is perfect. Yeah, so I'll, I'll come check that out. So I get down there, and uh, sure enough, his boss was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, introduces himself and then right when you open the doors to get into the trading floor it's just an overwhelming um almost like concussive blast of noise from all the yelling down there to actually have a conversation with with a person standing next to you back then you'd have to scream at each other so 5400 traders on the trading floor total sort of electricity in the air because you knew how much risk was going on and how many millions of dollars are, were uh made and lost you know at, at every second of the day so it was an environment that i sort of just looked at i was like this is freaking incredible and um and i i hit it off with his boss so um we we stayed in touch when i actually uh went back to the base and uh he asked me what i was going to do when i got out and i said you know honestly uh i have no idea i just always knew when i you know ever since i was a kid i wanted to be in the military but from there on i'm not so sure so um he ended up getting me my first job with the largest market making firm down there called Spare Leads and Kellogg. And uh, I remember the first day I entered the building, he said, Well, you are going to be the most junior clerk at the largest firm on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Whatever happens from here is up to you. So, wow. um, yeah, so uh, the first six months, I got to tell you, the first six months really sucked. So, <laughs> so, uh, the funny thing was, you know, everyone sort of gets put through the ringer their first six months on the New York Stock Exchange. Back then, highly competitive. Most people didn't make it past the first year. Uh, they they really just put you through the ringer, have you doing all these manual, you know, menial tasks um, to, to just see if you had what it takes to to actually stay there 
and if you were worth investing the time and effort to train. So everything was an apprenticeship back then. I, you know, I didn't go to college. I, I got in. Uh, they saw my background was intelligence, so they figured I had half a brain. Uh, they gave me a, a test where basically it was like a speed math test that I did pretty wrong, and they gave me a shot. So um, after six months of like grabbing people's lunches and, and doing all that kind of thing, I, j I remember just thinking to myself, man, this sucks. What the hell did I get myself into? You know, I was in the military. I had a, I had a great job. I had, I had a meaningful job that I felt like I was contributing um, to, to a greater good. And here it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a low man with a totem pole and I'm, I'm grabbing lunches for everybody. What's going to come of this? And then I remember at that point thinking to myself, you know, maybe I have a chip on my shoulder because I, I built myself up in the military. I'm in a new world here. The only thing that I'm owed is some sort of an opportunity. And from there on, it's really up to me. But having been a corporal in the Marine Corps, this is one of the only jobs in the world where I could walk away from this and be a millionaire. Like the sky's the limit. Right. So yeah. then I then I just thought to myself, you know, for the next six, I'm not a quitter. So it's been six months. I'm going to give it another six months. And if they want me to grab lunch, I'm going to be like best lunch getter ever on the New York Stock Exchange. And I'm going to actually volunteer to do everything I can. And in six months from here, if I still think this way, at least I can walk away and say, I gave it a year. I gave it a shot. It just wasn't for me. And that's when everything changed because everyone saw my attitude was that I will do anything. And that's when the opportunities came. So eventually I became um, an arbitrage trader. I was a managing director and a partner with a firm down there. So um, it was all just hard work and effort. You know, every inch that I gained, I fought for. Well, I, I mean, listen, you didn't learn that anywhere other than the Marine Corps. So uh, from that standpoint, yeah, you, you translated what you learned very well. Absolutely. And I, I was very uh, grateful that later on, um, when I was in a position to do so, I was able to start engaging with the military. And we had an apprenticeship program for veterans trying to get jobs on Wall Street. And I was a mentor for that. And then we started doing care package drives once these wars lit up. And then from there, I just started volunteering with all different sorts of uh, veteran, veteran service organizations in New York. So um, I'm currently a member of, you know, I run the United War Veterans Council, but I'm a leader of seven other organizations as a volunteer. Well, that takes me to our next point. Again, you, uh, you founded the United War Veterans Council, um, the Health and Wellness Program. What is that? Why would you start it? And uh, what does it do right now? Yeah, so... Um, the the health and wellness program really started through a series of connections I'd made over the years. So in 2016, I did a thousand mile ruck march for post-traumatic stress um, suicide awareness. So I lost one of my team members that I served with in Desert Storm and went to Series School with. Uh, he went back twice as a civilian contractor to Operation Iraqi Freedom, took his own life in 2010. Oh, so man. I took up this thousand uh, mile challenge with 950 other people. But then I, my twist on it was I'm going to spread awareness. I was with Team Red, White, and Blue, and uh, it's one of our sort of things that we do is we run with a big American flag in these red shirts. Yep. So so I started carrying the American flag for a thousand miles, logging my my miles on GPS, and through that I started meeting a whole bunch of people, um, and they told me their stories of of having been veterans or whatever it was. But by coincidence, I mean. And it's five below with the windshield factor. I'm in the hills here on the Jersey coast. And I meet this couple who's trucking along. It's five, it's, you know, negative five. Out. <laughs> and I'm out there with my ruck on. I was carrying like a 50 pound ruck load. And um, 
And this woman sort of charges up to me because she sees I'm wearing like a military top. And she goes, are you a veteran? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I have a farm that I want to dedicate to veterans uh, suffering with PTS. We have six horses and we're going to open up in the spring. Can you help me? So I was like, boy, did you meet the right person? So at this time, I actually was going through traditional um, therapy through the VA for post-traumatic stress. So um, I ended up being the guinea pig and going through the equine farm. I helped them get the farm in shape and, and help them clear the trails and that kind of thing. But I was the first one to actually go through their therapy. And from there, I started meeting other people. I met this awesome organization. This one was called Serenity Stables. So that's the one we go to every week. And another one that we connected to was a sail ahead and they do sailing for veterans out in Long Island. So this incredible family came from France and two teenage sons came up with the idea and they said, we've been sailing all of our lives, uh, the calm of the ocean, using the wind and te teamwork, I think would be beneficial for veterans suffering with PTS because normally where they don't want to communicate, now they'll have to work as a team to operate the sails, to steer the ship and to make it move. And if they don't know anything about sailing, we could have half the boat know how to sail and half the boat be the veterans. So um, the dad said, that's a great idea. You know, why don't we pitch this to the, to the yacht club captains? And they pitched it to them. And they said, who will lend us your boats? Because we need boats. And everyone raised their hand. So um, these are the types of relationships I started building. And then later, when I, when I went from volunteer to vice president to, to executive director of the United War Veterans Council over a four-year period, I got to a place where I could finally stand something up. So I'd already been rucking through this thousand-mile challenge, and I knew the people at Go Ruck. So that's where it started. I asked Jason McCarthy, you know, Go Ruck is this uh, team-building sort of endurance events that are held around the country, and it was started by a Green Beret veteran. So I went through one of their leadership courses, met him, and I circled back and said, Jason, you know, I want to, I want to start taking at-risk veterans uh, rucking, hiking as a form of social fitness. So I started a partnership with an organization in New York City called Samaritan Daytop Village. They have two facilities for, for at-risk veterans, one's in Times Square, one's in Queens. They each house about 45 male veterans. These veterans are suffering from a multitude of, of issues from post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, addiction problems, homelessness, and some of them in and out of jail, some of them all of it. And uh, through that, that's where the veterans actually come from. So, so we have them come out to the, the Jersey coast for the most part, unless we're out in Long Island, and they engage in, in now rucking, um, hiking, and, uh, and then we also do um, the equine therapy every week, sailing in the summers, and we have uh, an art studio here in Red Bank. Another coincidence, the, the art studio was started by a former trader that was at the same firm that I was at years ago. Wow. I didn't, I didn't find that out until after I was sending Beth there already. Oh, wow. So, uh, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to say that in about a year and a half, we'd have, we've had over a thousand veteran interactions through the program and, uh, the community's really started to embrace it. So like my favorite pizza joint buys us lunch, like every time we come out, cause they know it's veterans that they're helping John Bon Jovi, the rock singer has a restaurant in town that was created for people who can't afford meals. So you can volunteer and work for food. There's no prices on the menu, so regular customers come in and donate to the cause to keep it going. So what I do is That's our amazing. typical day. That's yeah, amazing. Our typical, <laughs> our typical day is uh, we we end up going rucking. We go to the farm. We'll we'll go do um, 
art therapy at the art studio. And then we end the day and we volunteer for like an hour and a half at John Bon Jovi's restaurant called Soul Kitchen. And then we all eat together. And the reason why we do it on Wednesdays is most people don't know this. John Bon Jovi's mom and dad were both Marine veterans. That's how they met. Wow. So, so his dad volunteers to cook once a week. It's on Wednesdays. So he wants the veterans there when he cooks. So he could actually come out, cook for them, and engage with them. So it's been pretty amazing. But I think it's equally as important as the fact that the the community has gotten involved in this almost as much as the therapy aspect of what we do, simply because I've had these veterans that have been through hell and back. I mean, some of them are dealing with all these issues. And I hear it over and over. They say to me, it really restores my faith in humanity, knowing that someplace like Soul Kitchen exists or knowing that like our favorite pizza joint buys us lunch like every week. It's just incredible kindness. And to them, it means everything. You know, I've said this for a while now. Um, and, you know, people will come up to me, you know, as you know, as listeners of this podcast know, I'm a lieutenant colonel, been in for 19 years, yeah. still going strong. But, you know, ah. it, it, I, I've been doing this podcast for over a year now, actually coming up on two years now. And everybody we talk to in the veterans community, somebody's affiliated with an organization, whether it's one they started or one that they work with, so on and so forth. There's so many veterans organizations out there. And I, I've always said to everybody, I said, you know, I really wish that we could consolidate all these veterans organizations into a, a couple of big ones. Because, you know, hey, it's a principle of war, right? Economy of force and unity of effort is what we talk yep. about. But we have so yep. many of these veterans organizations out there all fighting for the same piece of the pie. And the reason right. why they all exist is for one simple premise. Because what we have learned is that as people who have chosen a life of service and put on a uniform – Nobody really can help us when we get back. So we do the one thing that we know how to do best, and that's take care of each other. And that's why all these veterans organizations exist, because veterans know how to take care of each other, because that's all we know is the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you. And without that person to the left and the person to the right, you're probably not alive. And, and, and that's why all these organizations exist and how we take care of each other, because we're all so willing just to put our arm around somebody who did what we did and say, hey, man, I'm with you. Absolutely. That's very well said. And what we are seeing, though, over the course of the last couple of years, especially, you know, with the with the wars sort of winding down or, or evolving as they have, is that um, there's more, there's going to be probably more consolidation of veteran service organizations across the country. I mean, now there's like over 40,000 of them. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, there, there definitely should be more collaborative efforts, um, which is basically what we've done with our with our health and wellness program. Um, you know, if, if you're helping veterans, it shouldn't be a competition. Everyone's right. Be, that's know, the point. Helping each other out. <laughs> yep. Hey, real Absolutely. quick, Mark, um, tell me about the New York City Veterans Day Parade. Uh, you guys helped put that on largest Veterans Day parade in the country, always held on November 11th, which actually is Veterans Day. How did that whole thing come about? How long has it been going on? Oh, it's been going on for quite a long time, but the uh, relevance for, for sort of our iteration of the United War Veterans Council and, and the Veterans Day Parade, um, probably the landmark date was 1985. So so Vince McGowan um, was, was the president at the time. Uh, the American Legion used to run the parade. They sort of gave it up, and Vince McGowan was a Vietnam veteran, and he served in special operations in Vietnam. And uh, he said, you know, we're not going to have it. There has to be a Veterans Day Parade. So he and a handful of Vietnam veterans took up the helm. Uh, they, they resurrected the charter for the United War Veterans Council, and they began the process of rebuilding the parade. Uh, 1985 was a small handful of them, 
and now it's built all the way up to through the years. Um, now we have over 25,000 marchers. It is the largest Veterans Day parade in the country every year. Uh, so, so we we are proud to sort of it, what we do is it's a parade, but it's also acting as the largest reunion for veterans every year. So veterans of every generation. We we have veterans going back to World War II, Korea, Vietnam, you know, all the little skirmishes like Panama, Beirut, um, Desert Storm, and then of course post 9/11, Jiwa. So um, so it's an incredible atmosphere to see. Uh, we run it on Fifth Avenue. It starts right in front of the Flatiron Building, and uh, it, it goes all the way up to uh, St. Pat's Cathedral. So um, it, it is incredible to see. We have an opening ceremony uh, before the parade. So this year, the, the opening ceremony will start from 10 to 11 on 25th and 5th at Madison Square Park. There's an, an eternal light flagstaff, uh, which is a giant flagpole that dates back to the beginning of the parade. So um, this year, the Army is the featured service branch. Our Grand Marshal is Florent Groberg, Flo Groberg, Army veteran, yep. uh, Medal of Honor recipient in Afghanistan. Um, one of our marshals is is Jason McCarthy, founder of GORUCK, Green Beret veteran. Um, another marshal that we have is Mike Irwin, who is the founder of Team Red, White, and Blue. Uh, he's also a, a multiple um, tour veteran of, of the uh, of the army and he and he still is a lieutenant colonel and a former uh, hazard ground podcast guest so uh, if you're interested in that That's episode right. go back shameless plug there you go and then um we have uh joe Mag- masariki who actually started black vets of social justice which has done a lot of great work in the community as well so um we have quite a lineup and we also have um and our executive contingent is american humane so american humane uh, has rescued over a billion animals around the world, and they are celebrating their centennial of working with the military. So they started with World War, uh, World War One war horses, and uh, now they have a couple of components that that help both with active military and veterans. So they take unwanted animals, they rehabilitate them, and they train them to be service dogs that are sent overseas. So uh, other dogs that they have, they rehabilitate them, and they turn them into therapy dogs for veterans. And the third phase that they do is really special. If a veteran served overseas with a dog and they want to adopt that dog, it's a really, really difficult process. But yeah. that's another thing that they actually help with as well. Wow. That's incredible. Well, yeah. obviously, I mean, everybody knows about it because, you know, we see it on the news and things of that nature. But when you get to the inner workings of the parade, it's uh, it's impressive to say the least that you've put that many forces together all on the same page to be able to put together an event that, uh, you know, honors honors everybody's service and what they have done. And certainly, uh, you know, your efforts don't go unnoticed every single year, but uh, it's just incredible everything that you've been able to do um, over the course of not only your military career, but your post-military career probably maybe in certain cases is more impressive. Thanks. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm just playing my part and and trying to help our fellow veterans out there. Well, again, Mark, I mean, listen, uh, you know, the four years in the Marine Corps jam-packed, what you have done afterwards certainly – um, is still having an impact today on veterans everywhere, not only in the New York City area, but uh, all over the country. And, and the tentacles and the reach that you have is, is incredible. And we certainly appreciate all the efforts that you have, uh, have put forth. And it's just, it's going strong. And, you know, I'm proud, proud of you, brother. I mean, it's just a great job. Uh, thanks so much. And I really appreciate you having me on board. Uh, it's been a delight to talk to you. Um, I'm sorry if I rambled on a bit much. No. But I get too excited <laughs> about talking about these types of things. No, if you want to learn anything else about the uh, the parade, you can go to uwvc.org. 
So if you want to be a volunteer or support the parade in any way, you can just uh, follow it through our website. And it's uwvc.org again. Uh, if you want to donate or be a part of it, that's just amazing stuff. And I certainly think that uh, you'll, in the future, you'll have a lot of the Hazard Ground community support going forward. So Mark Otto, it has been a pleasure. Uh, congratulations on all your success, both with the service and in your regular life and everything you're doing post-career. So uh, we certainly appreciate you joining us on the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.